Welcome to Rights Talk, a podcast devoted to engaging contemporary human rights challenges from around the world. I'm Danielle Zach, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Human Rights at the City College of New York downtown. Today's theme is reproductive rights in the United States and globally. Joining us for this discussion is Cynthia Suhu, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Human Rights and Gender Justice Clinic at the City of New York School of Law. Thank you so much for joining us, Cynthia. Thanks, Danielle. I'm really glad to be here. So we've just recently seen a major change, a major blow to reproductive rights in the United States with the overturning of Roe on June 24th of 2022 this year. Before we start talking about the post-Roe era in the United States, though, I'd like to ask if you can just give us some historical background on reproductive oppression in the United States context. Um, Thanks, Danielle. And I'm really glad you asked that question because I think while we're all um, correctly outraged by the Supreme Court stripping away of constitutional protections for abortion rights in Dobbs versus Jackson, I do think it is important for us to understand the current attack uh, within the history of reproductive oppression in the United States. So in the United States, like other countries, reproductive oppression has really taken the form both of preventing and forcing childbearing, and really depending on societal attitudes about the fitness or value of certain mothers and their children at any given point in time. And so, you know, going back to the founding of the country, reproductive oppression for enslaved Black women literally meant ownership of their bodies, right, and reproductive capacity by others, forced pregnancy and denial of the ability to parent their children. You know, in the 1860s, uh, control over people's bodies really moved from control uh, by other individuals to um, control by the government as states began passing laws criminalizing abortion and contraception. And then by the beginning of the 20th century, states tried to assert even more direct control over women's fertility as many states passed laws allowing state facilities to sterilize people who were disabled or deemed unfit or feeble-minded. And then after World War II, you know, I think states, um, state-ordered sterilization fell out of favor. And in the 1960s and 70s, we saw legal challenges that resulted in court cases Um, resulting in the decriminalization of contraception and abortion, which included the 1973 case Roe versus Wade, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, um, which recognized the constitutional right to abortion. But, you know, it's really good to keep in mind that even with these constitutionally protected rights uh, to abortion and societal understanding that um, forced sterilization is wrong, you know, many communities, even in these these this era of legal protections still continue to face different forms of reproductive oppression, right? So like in the 1960s and 70s, many black and brown communities were subject to course of sterilization practices through government programs or facilities that conducted sterilization without their consent or knowledge or by um, coercing consent, you know, by tying it to withholding benefits. And so like while it's formed changes at bottom, I think we should understand reproductive oppression as the instrumentalization of a person's reproductive capacity to serve the goals of others. And, you know, in the United States, these goals have, are obviously rooted in patriarchy and gender discrimination, but also inextricably tied to slavery, white supremacy, nativism, classism, ableism, all of the isms, right, in terms of a person's entire identity. Um, 
And, you know, while we're talking about reproductive justice, I also just want to note that while it is a women's issue, it's not just a women's issue, right? People with a diverse range of gender identities can become pregnant, can seek abortions or need other reproductive health services. And many people who experience reproductive oppression don't identify as women. That includes, you know, some men, transgender people, gender nonconforming and queer individuals. Thank you, Cindy, for making sure that we have that lens, that there's a wide, wider range of persons uh, with diverse identities that are impacted by this recent Supreme Court decision. I want to ask about Roe itself. Perhaps maybe we can think about the legal groundwork that was laid and now has been undone, but also the ways in which during, you know, between Roe and the present moment, you know, there were there was and has been consistent systematic attacks against reproductive rights. So perhaps maybe we can, you know, discuss the context of Roe. Also, you know, what was the decision based upon? What were the rights that were said to be violating by abortion bans, both in Roe and then subsequently the Casey decision in the 90s? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade in, involved the Texas law that criminalized uh, performing an abortion unless the abortion was necessary to save a pregnant person's life. Case decided in 1973. Um, and in that case, the Supreme Court struck down the law and recognized a constitutionally protected right to terminate a pregnancy under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution's Due Process Clause, which says that states can't deprive a person of liberty without due process of law. And so um, while the decision recognized a constitutionally protected right to abortion, it also recognized that the right was not absolute. It recognized that the state had a valid interest in protecting fetal life, but in order to respect the constitutional rights of the pregnant person, it adopted a trimester framework and uh, it prohibited states. It, it said that states absolutely could not make abortion illegal until the third trimester of pregnancy. Uh, and it, but it also allowed the state to um, passed limited regulations on abortion in the second trimester. So after Roe, um, you know, th there were various attempts to try to water down its impact, right? So, you know, one thing that's important to understand that in an early case after Roe, um, the Supreme Court held that even though there's a constitutional right to abortion, um, Congress could actually prohibit the use of Medicaid funding for abortions. Um, essentially imposing an obstacle specifically targeting poor people to prevent them from having an abortion, right? So even though you have this constitutionally, constitutionally protected right to abortion, the state can still try to discourage you from having an abortion or even impose, you know, an obstacle, right? By saying that you're not, um, Medicaid is going to cover all the the health insurance needs of a poor person, but not abortion, right? And for the specific purpose of, of preventing certain people from having abortions. Um, and in this period, states also started pa passing regulations <clears throat> that tried to change people's minds. So they started passing laws requiring people to um, be subjected to counseling to sort of hear, you know, that they were terminating a human life or to hear things that actually aren't true, like abortion, might, having abortion might lead to cancer, but, you know, sort of state imposed information and waiting periods trying to dissuade them. So that led to, um, so all of these types of restrictions led the Supreme Court to sort of rethink um, Roe in the, the 1992 case, um, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Um, and in that case, the Supreme Court considered a few different abortion regulations, but it really reaffirmed the core holding of Roe, which is that states can't prohibit a person from making the ultimate decision about whether or not to um, end terminate pregnancy prior to fetal viability. And this was a little 
shift in time because I think because of um, medical advancements, they sort of said viability, which now I think is understood at about 24 weeks rather than the third trimester. But that, you know, the core holding, the states can't make it illegal and absolutely say you can't have an abortion prior to viability was reaffirmed. But the state said, uh, sorry, the court said that states could adopt regulations um, from the, the beginning of the pregnancy to further their interest in fetal life, the state's interest in fetal life. And here, I think the Supreme Court honestly was thinking about these kinds of counseling you know, provisions and waiting provisions, um, as well as regulations designed to protect women's health, right? So regulations really um, to make uh, abortion safer, right? And states should have the ability to regulate any medical procedure to make it safer. So then after, um, as long as sort of these, reg- these two types of regulations didn't impose an undue burden, right? So states can't make abortion illegal and they can regulate it as long as, you know, sort of the obstacles that the regulations are creating don't create an undue burden. So then after Casey, states began um, sort of, you know, sort of pushing the limits and passing laws that purported to be health regulations. And you may have heard of these, these trap regulations, targeted regulation of abortion providers um, that aren't medically necessary and really are just designed to make it more expensive, create red tape and make it um, difficult or impossible for providers to stay in business. And um, so this resulted in, you know, even while Roe and Casey were good law, many states only having one clinic that provided abortions or many areas of the United States becoming like um, abortion deserts where people had to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles, Um, you know, and then once they traveled, like, you know, the long distances, they would be subject to waiting periods where they might have to hear counseling and then wait 24 hours, right? So people have to travel great distance, get childcare, get time off from work, you know, and sort of deal with all these unnecessary regulations. And so I think it's important to, for us to recognize that, right, even while Roe and Casey were protecting this legal right to abortion, you know, many communities really faced like cost, travel, and other logistical barriers that made it difficult or impossible for them to access services, and that these types of burdens really disproportionately fell on communities of color, poor people, people living in rural areas, right? And so um, that was sort of the state before uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. I want to ask you about just going back to the law to to Roe and Casey. You know, what were the premises of these rights uh, for of these reproductive rights? What was you said the Fourteenth Amendment, right? Right, right. Uh, the right to privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, although you know, I've been following you know some of the commentary by various actors, agencies at the United Nations and thinking about, you know, their commentary on the Dobbs and have referred not just to the right to privacy, but also a right to health, uh, a right to autonomy, a right to a range of, of, of rights that were invoked in international law as being violated by the overturning of Roe. Um, and so I'm just thinking of the ways in which the premises of, of both Roe and Casey um, maybe fell short of kind of a broader range of rights to which reproductive rights speak to. Yeah, um, I think that that's absolutely right. And, and I'll say, you know, I think, you know, between Roe and, and, and Casey, even though um, the Supreme Court has sort of recognized that the right to abortion is under the 14th Amendment, you know, liberty clause, I think, you know, and you know it's rooted in cases involving privacy in terms of 
you know, the right to make decisions about your family or to make intimate decisions about reproduction. But I think in Casey, it's sort of articulated more as an autonomy right and, and really recognizing that there's both a bodily autonomy right, 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 this right, that this ability to make decisions about what's going to happen to your body, as well as a right to make decisions about these, the most important decisions about a person's life, right? And whether you're going to bear a child, whether you're going to um, become a parent, you know, so th that's sort of the basis in the United States, but you're absolutely right. Like under international law, there is, there's a recognition that it's not just uh, privacy or autonomy, right? That it's the right to health, right? That in turn for, for a pregnant person, reproductive healthcare is part of um, healthcare, that the Human Rights Committee has recognized that access to abortion is essential to the right to life. And that's because, you know, in other countries, ironically, because, or maybe not ironically, because, but because abortion had been illegal in many countries, you know, many people um, who needed abortion care would, um, uh, have unsafe abortions, right? And so like, because of that actual real world experience, I think the human rights, the UN Human Rights Committee and other human rights bodies have recognized that actually in many cases when you're making abortion, criminalizing abortion, totally banning it, it's it's gonna, it could be a violation of the right to life for uh, a pregnant person. It violates um, the right to non-discrimination, right? Based on gender, um, based on stereotypes about, you know, um, the, the proper roles of women, um, but, and also the ways in which gender intersects with class, right, with, um, with race, you know, with, um, you know, rural, rural women, um, because, you know, these people are going to have a disproportionate uh, lack of access to abortion. And then I think the, the Human Rights Committee, I think, and, and also, um, I, I, I think the Special Rapporteur on Torture have recognized that in certain instances, you know, if the state is going to pro prohibit a person from having an abortion, it actually is state-imposed cruel and human integrating treatment or torture, right? And these are instances where someone has been raped, right? And sort of the state actually prohibiting or forcing them to continue that pregnancy constitutes cruel and human integrating treatment, or in cases where it's clear the fetus is not going to survive, right? So, so forcing a person to continue and endure that pregnancy um, uh, has been recognized by human rights bodies as cruel and human integrating treatment. Thank you for that, that elaboration. It really is helpful to just take a look at not just the ways in which it's grounded in or was grounded in constitutional law, but also thinking about how international human rights law um, speaks to this issue. And again, I was just... Um, kind of, I was, I was impressed to see kind of the range of rights that got invoked in response to, you know, the, the U.S. Supreme Court decision this past June. I thought maybe we could delve into the ways in which, in addition to regulation, in addition to the restrictions on Medicaid spending, as you had already mentioned, Professor Suhu, we can talk a bit more about other tactics, both direct in terms of criminalization of abortion and other forms of reproductive care. And also if we can talk about indirect policies and the way such as neoliberal policy and the pairing back of the welfare state in terms of how those have also um, impacted particularly disproportionately black and brown women and the, and the poor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one interesting, you know, a lot of times people ask um, to sort of compare what we're facing now to sort of the pre-row days. And I think that um, the sort of 
escalating criminal penalties and sort of the appetite to criminalize uh, people is is new and different and maybe sort of reflects the different moment we are in in Amer- American history because um, you know so what we're we're seeing is laws that have extreme criminal penalties for people who perform abortions you know um, t- like I think there's an Oklahoma law that required 10 years in prison a hundred thousand dollars in criminal penalties um, as well as like a real appetite, to criminalize people. I think, you know, in the pre-row days, I think it was really seldom for a doctor to actually be prosecuted unless the patient died, right? And then there was sort of this independent in terms of, you know, the quality of care that was being provided for the pregnant person. Um, But we're, I think we're just in in a different, um, different world in terms of the escalation and the number of, of criminal laws that we're seeing, the type of penalties, as well as even the increased appetite to criminalize the pregnant person. You know, I think that, that and there's a split right now in the anti-choice movement. I think, you know, the mainstream movement has always said, like to characterize a person who has an abortion as the victim, right? And the provider uh, as the, 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 the criminal, right? And we're sort of seeing um, states pass laws that uh, potentially could directly criminalize uh, the person who had an abortion, as well as, I mean, we've already seen in many states, even um, where the laws don't authorize actually uh, cr- uh, bringing criminal penalties against a person who's ended their own abortion, that um, uh, overzealous uh, prosecutors have tried to, to um, prosecute people. So I feel like we're like in a whole different environment. And, you know, when we earlier we had talked about um, human rights standards. And one thing that human rights bodies have said repeatedly is that while states can regulate abortion, they shouldn't be able to make it criminal. And that's because um, when you criminalize abortion, you're really making it so much more dangerous um, in terms of health and the and the life of the pregnant person, right? Because you're really creating a system where if a person needs access to care, right, both in terms of if they they want to go to someone to have an abortion, but if they have an abortion and for some reason there's complications, they're not going to go to the healthcare the healthcare provider because they're going to be afraid that they're going to be arrested, right? And we're we've seen this like also in countries like El Salvador and other places, right, where people have had miscarriages and they're accused of having abortions, and you know they're they've in you know in El Salvador like a lot of people have been tried for homicide and you know have been face lengthy criminal sentences. And so the, so I feel like that's the environment that we're um, operating in today, which I think is really um, upsetting. So we've seen cases of women who've been prosecuted for yeah. stillborn and miscarriages, which of course are naturally occurring in reproduction uh, as we know, but uh, they're being accused uh, without any ability to really defend themselves, it seems, uh, against these accusations. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, it, you know, there's sort of two types of pros- prosecutions. I think, you know, prosecutions involving someone who had a pregnancy outcome that was unintended, right? Someone who who lost, who actually intended to continue a pregnancy and had a stillbirth or a miscarriage. And oftentimes, especially, you know, when there are, um, when they're people of color, when, when they're poor, maybe they hadn't sought um, uh, prenatal care earlier, right? Sometimes maybe there's a positive drug test, right? They're accused of causing 
um, the miscarriage. And, um, you know, in some, and in some states, they've been prosecuted, right? Often with very little evidence, actually, that the drug use has actually, has actually caused the miscarriage or stillbirth. But sort of the, um, the stigma against the pregnant person uh, is so great in those instances that they've been able to, um, pro- to successfully prosecute people. Um, and then, you know, there are cases where a person has had, um, is accused of self-inducing abortion, right? Sort of self-managing an abortion outside of the healthcare system. And those people have been prosecuted as well. Um, and sometimes, like I said, there's very few states that actually, I think maybe three states that actually, um, before uh, the Dobbs decision anyway, um, made it uh, illegal for someone to have a, self, to have a self-managed abortion. Um, but what's happened in those states um, is that prosecutors just find things to charge people with. So th- there have been cases where people are charged with things like um, concealing uh, a corpse, or, you know, they just sort of find other things to charge them. And it sort of just goes back to, you know, there's this stigma against this person who has self-managed an abortion. We've been talking about criminalization um, over the past decades. And I have two questions I want to follow up with. One is, what are the implications for um, women's political rights? I think about the ways in which um, you can lose voting privileges. Is that something that has been talked about or is of a concern? I mean, I even think about the cases of permanent disenfranchisement. Right. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, I feel like this ties back to the point we were talking about earlier in terms of just this aggressive use of um, criminal law, right? And sort of trying to uh, find ways in the, in the United States of criminalizing people um, you know, for things that would not be criminal uh, in other countries, right? And then using those things to sort of disenfranchise a certain segment of the population. I also wanted to follow up because, you know, it seems like, you know, this trend of criminalization, at least certainly uh, since the 19, late 1970s, but certainly into the 1980s, particularly with the war on drugs, occurred in tandem with the implementation of neoliberal policy, and particularly, I mean, the pairing back of the welfare state and socioeconomic um, safeguards. Uh, And particularly, I think about, you know, the shift in uh, aid to dependent families and with the workfare program under Clinton. And what are the, what is the relationship here between socioeconomic rights and reproductive rights? Right. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's that's a great question. And, you know, I think when you're thinking about reproductive rights, there's sort of two levels of things going on, right? You know, in the United States, we really don't have respect for social and economic rights, right, in terms of the state's obligation to make sure that people actually have access, meaningful access to health care, right? And in, you know, you would have thought in a country, in other countries, rather, where there was sort of a constitutional right to abortion, like the state would have had an obligation to ensure that people actually have access, right? So there should have been, like, there should have been state state and federal government programs thinking about, you know, we have really, we don't have any abortion providers in rural areas, right? And we should actually be thinking about how are we training new abortion providers, right? And that's, I feel like that in that way, reproductive rights the lack of respect for social and economic rights impacts reproductive rights. But also on top of that, you actually, it, it, it's kind of like it's backwards, right? Instead of this, historically, instead of the state 
making an effort to try to think about how do I expand access? How do we expand access and make sure people can meaningfully exercise the right? The state was actually um, allowed to, to create more barriers, right? So like the state actually was, you know, with the trap laws actually passing laws that were diminishing the number of providers, right? And the state was actually rather than, um, even though it was, you know, funding um, healthcare services for everything, every other type of healthcare, it wasn't, it, it was targeting abortion, right? So it was sort of like another layer on top. Um, and then the other thing I think that your the question brings to mind is just, you know, when we're talking about reproductive justice as, so there's reproductive justice is sort of understood um, by reproductive justice activists in the United States, which is really um, a framework that was founded by um, women of color and, and particularly black women in the 19, 1994, um, thinking about the forms of reproductive oppression that they face, right? Sort of saying, you know, the demand isn't just for abortion rights or the rights not to have a child. Actually, if we're talking about reproductive rights and justice, it really is about the right to have a child, the right not to have a child, and the right to parent a child in a safe and healthy environment. So that, and then, so you also have to think about what's the other side of the equation in terms of if we were thinking meaningfully about social and economic rights, right? The state should be, um, thinking about ways to enable people who, who want to have children to have children, right? And here we're thinking about, you know, not just like anti-pregnancy discrimination laws, but, you know, paid childcare leave, um, you know, child tax credits, like, or, you know, all of these things that actually would make it, um, you know, for people who wanted to have children, um, you know, enabling them to have children. And, and, and when you think about, you know, the pro-life movement, right? Wouldn't that, if you really want people to have children, why don't you actually spend your resources in making it easier for them to choose to have children if they actually want to, right, rather than passing all these criminal restrictions? Yeah, I just think of all the socioeconomic barriers that people face to having children, particularly in the United States, given its lack of uh, fulfillment of social and economic rights uh, that we see in other countries, as you mentioned, childcare, as you mentioned, um, the ways in which uh, I mean, the United States doesn't even have any paid parental leave, right? right? That's guaranteed to families. I mean, the managing a, a household that will likely, you know, more than more than likely have two income earners and have a child uh, is is very, very challenging to say the least. And so we can see the ways in which, you know, as you mentioned, the, the movement that seeks to criminalize abortion Um you know, at the same time is against expanding social and economic, social and economic rights for families right. that would facilitate, um, you know, being able to, to have a family. Right. Absolutely. I want to ask you about, you know, why the overturning of Roe in 2022, right? What sociopolitical forces, you know, led to this moment uh, this 50 year um, <laughs> overturning, you know, overturning of a 50 year long um, right in this country. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are like scratching their heads, just, just trying to figure out what exactly happened. I mean, I feel like um, there's like a long term answer and a short term answer. Um, you know, as soon as Roe was decided, like there were groups and individuals who dedicated themselves to overturning the decision and they really refused to accept Roe as settled law, 
right? I mean, I think that that's part of it, right? And they developed a long-term legal and political strategy to continually challenge the decision in courts, right? And we talked about that earlier in terms of how, you know, they were passing these laws just to sort of test the limits of, of, of Roe and, you know, constantly either bo- both trying to directly overturn it, but also just trying to narrow the decision um, and, you know, make it met, uh, less meaningful protection of people's rights. But I think the other thing that happened in the United States is that abortion became a political issue, right? And when Roe came down, like there were many Republicans who were in favor of abortion rights and Democrats who were against abortion rights. But I, in the late 19, I think, 70s and 80s, like Republican strategists really began began to court conservative Catholics and later evangelical voters who they, I think, thought were, um, would reliably vote based on opposite to abortion and other socially conservative issues. And I think that that politicization um, of abortion rights, like, it is part of the reason why we're where we are today. Um, And then, you know, in recent years, Republicans have really used opposition to abortion and passing anti-abortion legislation, you know, at the state level every year just to motivate their base. And a lot of the laws, I think, you know, the legislators in the states didn't actually know what the laws were doing or they were really unnecessary, but it was just sort of this constantly drumming up support, you know, and sort of, you know, showing that they were tough on abortion, right, in, in terms of getting these votes. And then the Republicans also decided to make it a priority to appoint Supreme Court justices who opposed abortion. Right. And so that's sort of the short term answer. Right. So once I think Justice Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were appointed, you know, the writing was really on the wall. And, you know, because that created a five four conservative majority. Um, And in fact, after Justice Kavanaugh was uh, appointed, um, you saw states not just passing like trap legislation, but laws that actually banned abortion. Right. So laws that were clearly unconstitutional, like total bans on abortion or bans very early um, in uh, a pregnancy that under, you know, uh, Roe and Casey clearly were unconstitutional. Um, but they sort of, they saw the writing on the wall and they're like, you know what, we don't care what the, what the um, law of the land is because now we have Supreme Court justices who are going to vote the other way, right? And, um, and then when Amy Coney Barrett um, was appointed, there was this, um, you know, 6-3 supermajority. And what that did was um, it allowed the Supreme Court to completely overturn Roe versus Wade Right, rather than watering down the standard, which I think was what um, Justice Roberts would have preferred. Right, so like I think Roberts would have said, um, there is a constitutional right to abortion, but you don't have, um, but states can ban abortion prior to viability. But you know he would have recognized I think some right to constitutional abortion, and maybe the long term strategy was eventually they would get rid of Roe, but just this idea that they would totally overturn a case after, you know, that had actually been reaffirmed in Casey. And you're right, it's been precedent for 50 years. I mean, you know, probably five years ago, you know, before Gorsuch and Kavanaugh were on the Supreme Court, like many of us would have thought would have been impossible. I want to ask you, what are the consequences of abortion bans and severe limitations um, that are being posed at the state level? And I ask this both in terms of individual women and persons with childbearing capacity, uh, and also for women collectively. Yeah, yeah. So, um, right. So, just like big picture, right. So now that there's no constitutional right to abortion, there's no minimum national standard, right. So there's no backstop that sort of says, you know, that limits what the states can do, right. So, 
Now, whether abortion is legal or illegal or when is up to the state legislatures. And just, you know, as a reminder, I think everyone's heard this a million times, but it's estimated that about half the states are going to ban abortion. Right. And right now, I think eight states have totally banned abortion, like three have banned it at six weeks and two have banned it at like 15 weeks. And and um, other states, I think, have also have other bans in place, but they're just being litigated. They're sort of various challenges that people are trying to delay. But I think that probably the fallout at the end of the day is that half the states will ban abortion. And Indiana actually called a special legislative session so that they could pass anti-abortion laws. Um, So what's going to happen and what we're already seeing is that people in need of abortions are either going to have to travel great distances, right, um, to get to states where abortion is legal, um, if they have the money or resources or time to to do that. And um, that this is really going to put a lot of pressure on states where there still is access to abortion, right? Because even because they're going to have to see twice or three times as many patients, right? So there's a, there's a tremendous need for, to, you know, to get people to places where they can get access as well as like build up capacity in those states. Um, but, and then the people who can't travel, I think are going to have to self-manage abortions and, you know, the, the good thing is that compared to pre-road days, medication abortion really makes it possible for people to have uh, self-managed care in a safer way. But, you know, the concern is just this growing criminalization, right? And so just the concern that people um, who, who want to access healthcare or have concerns, you know, really won't be able to go to hospitals or get, get medical care. Um, and I mean, I, and I, I just want to say, I've also just been hearing these stories about people like literally, you know, their appointments, you know, are canceled at the last minute and they're scrambling and no one really knows where they can go. And also like my heart goes out to, you know, the people who work in abortion clinics, right. Who like day to day don't even know what services they can provide, how long they're going to be able to stay open and like just their dedication to continuing to provide services. Um, I'm, I'm like amazed by those people. Um, and the other thing I guess I just wanted to say was um, that, you know, there are some states that have these bans that say, oh, you're able, but you're able to provide an abortion in, the, in a case where there's an emergency or the pregnant person's life is in danger, right? And I think for some, you know, for some conservative legislators, like that's their way of saying we care about pregnant people. <laughs> right. But it, you know, these things, the, those exceptions, I mean, we've seen across the world are, are just impossible to actually enforce in a meaningful way. They don't really understand the way pregnancy works or how medicine works, right? In terms of, you know, a doctor has to wait if someone has a condition until it actually becomes life-threatening, right? That That's ridiculous. Um, and, you know, but the criminal penalties are so severe, like I think it, it just is going to necessarily lead to doctors second-guessing themselves, you know, and we saw I mean, in Ireland, right, that famous case of the, the, the dent, the woman who was a dentist who um, was experiencing a miscarriage, who went to the hospital and, you know, the normal treatment is to complete the miscarriage and they refused, right, because there was still a heartbeat, right, and she died of sepsis, right? And this was actually one of the things that motivated, I, you know, helped motivate, you know, the Irish people to say enough, you know, we need to, to make abortion legal. And unfortunately, I feel like we're going to, 
you know, we're going to be seeing things like that because doctors, I mean, you're, you're already hearing about doctors, you know, turning people away, um, you know, who are having miscarriages and making them wait, you know, 10 days or whatever, while they're bleeding, um, you know, doctors refusing to treat people with ectopic pregnancies, you know, pharmacies refusing to give people medication for miscarriage management or lupus, right? Because potentially these, you know, these drugs could be used as an abortifacient, right? So just all of this ridiculous second guessing, um, even when people are trying to access services that are actually technically supposed to be legal, right? And, and you know, this is why these kinds of um, laws just don't work. Yeah, that this is um, these bans have anything to do with protecting or advancing women's health is obviously uh, insincere, quite frankly, given the evidence, um, given the many cases that you have just uh, brought up and the many examples of the ways in which this is harmful. But I also think about really the data show, right, bringing a full term birth, this statistically speaking, is more dangerous than having an abortion. Right. Right. And so I want to ask you, though, about medicine abortions um, and the yeah. ways in which, um, you know, how are or, or what has been some of the um, the ways in which we've seen um, the potential for this to be an alternative for women living in states? You know, as you've mentioned, this the self-managed abortion. Um, and in what ways are politicians, uh, particularly conservative politicians, seeking to limit the possibility of medications being um, shipped to women in states that ban the use of such medicines? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there's sort of a few different levels of how this plays out and, you know, it's sort of interaction in, into the way that medicine is regulated in states. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think you're right in terms of medication, abortion and telemedicine, um, you know, potentially create the opportunity for greater access in places where there are abortion deserts. Right. Um, but there's sort of this, that there's this issue about, what are the regulations on abortion in the state where the pregnant person is, right? And, um, you know, so like, you know, I think doctors will not want to be prescribing medication abortion and probably the people cannot get access in the pharmacies in places where um, abortion is illegal, right? And then um, even if abortion isn't illegal, there might be restrictions that prevent um, the use of telemedicines. Cause sometimes there are restrictions again, like that you have to um, undergo counseling in person, right? So that if the doctor is like not in that state you can't do the in-person counseling. Um, and sometimes states are passing laws that particularly um, target medication and telemedicine abortion. Um, but, but you know, that said, I think that there are instances where medication abortion is going to expand access. I think we need to keep in, in mind that medication abortion, I think, is only recommended earlier in pregnancy, right? So people who need late-term abortions, that's, that's not going to be an option for them. And then the other thing um, is with medication abortion, there's the, the option through aid access of getting um, abortion pills um, that are prescribed from doctors, I think, who are like in Europe or in, in India, right? And so they sort of have made the decision that since they're outside of the United States, they're 
they're less concerned about the criminal liability, right? So that does open up a possibility, but, you know, for the person who's using um, that, those medications uh, in that state, there's still the danger that they could be criminalized, right? I think of the other um, ways in which criminalization is being expanded, not only to include doctors, but uh, possibilities of anybody who aids somebody in some capacity to access abortion. Uh, I don't know if any laws have been put in place. Yeah, yeah. Well, Texas- Where there's a deeper reach in terms of these uh, criminal laws, uh, but also even thinking about, you know, again, uh, persons who are in other states potentially being um, implicated in these Yeah, laws. you know- these laws, I feel like, open up like a lot of hypos for lawyers, right? And um, you know, the Texas law um, uh, SB eight that you're talking about, you know, actually was it wasn't a criminal law; it actually created civil liability, right? For um, you know, so the ability to sue anyone who provided an abortion or aided and abetted an abortion, I think, prior to to six weeks, right? So there was this question about like, you know, if you were aiding and abetting someone to do something that was legal outside of Texas, right? Could, you know, could that be enforced or even, right. um, I think, you know, generally criminal laws, um, there are all, in, in existing state codes for criminal laws, there's also conspiracy to commit a crime or aiding and abetting a crime, right? So there's this sort of question if you're making abortion illegal, if, you know, someone is helping you get it, you know, are they going to be on the hook? Um, and then you can add the question and, and that's even within, in the state, right. But then add the question of, but if they go to a state where the abortion is legal, you know, would they be on the hook? And, you know, one answer might be, well, if you're aiding and abetting someone to commit, to do something that that's not a crime, then, then there shouldn't be aiding and abetting. Um, I think that some states like have you know, try to increase the reach of the criminal law by saying, if you commit a crime that has impact within our borders, even though it's occurred outside of our borders, that we have, re I mean, they're just all of these questions, right, that are really going to be opened up. But yeah. I think, you know, for the anti-abortion people, like, part of it is they're just throwing a lot of spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. But part of it is the chaos is part of it. Right. Because they're creating such uncertainty that no one that people don't want to do it. Right. Because you, you don't really know what the risk is. Right. And who wants to, you know, risk going to jail for 10 years or who wants to, you know, risk hundred thousand dollars or, you know, whatever it is, um, because no one wants to be sort of the first person. And, and we've already seen that there's such a again, this culture of um, surveillance. Right. And, you know, and, and people like looking for people to 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 prosecute. And, and, and so that environment, I think, just makes it um, achieves their purposes of really making it very, very difficult for people to provide services. And, and we've seen, you know, on, in the abortion friendly states attempts to sort of create protections for people, um, you know, so states like New York and Connecticut. Um, and I think California, you know, and this is actually based on work done by um, professors David Cohen and Greer Donnelly and Ra Rachel R Reboucher. Um, 
have passed laws that say that they're if if a, a doctor provides services that are legal within the state, that if they're getting sued for providing those legal services outside of the state, that the state is not going to um, uh, cooperate with this investigation, right? Not going to turn information over for subpoenas, not going to extradite people. And even I think in New York and some other states, they've created a, a sort of counter cause of action. And yeah, you're, yeah, a counter cause of action, you know, uh, which I think is like, you know, interference with protected rights and allowing, you know, a doctor or a healthcare provider who sued to counter sue. And it might even be like triple damages, you know, so, so, you know, and so that, I think that creates some protection, but it, it, you know, definitely doesn't, you know, when you're dealing with criminal laws and other things, there's still a level of uncertainty, like most people I think would be concerned about. Yeah. It seems like, you know, we have yet to see what the, you know, how this is going to shake out over the next few years in the courts with the disparities in access. I wanted to ask you um, if we can think about, you know, what this means for women collectively in the United States in terms of where we're at. Women's rights have been kind of a long fought for, still ongoing. We still see gender gaps in pay and we still see discrimination uh, in the workplace, what is what is this going to mean for women um, in terms of participation in the public sphere, in terms of work and labor? What are, what is going to be the outcome, or what are going to be some of the, the the collective consequences? Do you think? Yeah, it, it uh, well, hopefully, it 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 is going to lead to a new mobilization. Definitely, in the pre-row days you know, there was an active reproductive justice movement that was really, um, again, you know, addressing a range of reproductive oppression issues, but also, you know, really trying to address the lack of access to abortion care. And I think there was sort of a level of frustration, you know, with sort of the historic, you know, white woman led reproductive rights movement for not paying attention to laws that made it difficult or impossible for people to access abortion care um, because for people, you know, in spaces of privilege, having a legal right was enough, right? Because if you, you know, even if you lived in one of those states where there's only one abortion provider, you could always fly someplace else, right? It was, you could travel easily, right? And so in some ways, um, this is creating a space, you know, because they've taken away the floor um, and now, you know, no women or no people with reproductive capacity um, have protected abortion rights. Maybe that creates a space for, for people to come together. I was listening to Michelle Goodwin uh, talking about the new Jane Crow, but also talking about how Black women have been the canaries in the coal mine, as she says, uh, that they're, they've been disproportionately impacted by the systematic attacks over the past few decades and now it's finally right it's it's hit everyone well not everyone but those who are certainly in you know collectively in these states that are banning abortion but also has the possibility right of it seems like that there is an effort to not stop at the state level that there's an effort to target federal law yeah so it could possibly at some point be everybody. And so I just, again, I, I, I think 
the impacts uh, in terms of political participation, uh, presence in the public sphere. I think about gains in, you know, already that have been undermined by the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you know, again, women's progress socioeconomically is yeah. going to be further, just further undermined uh, yeah. as a result of these decisions or this particular decision. Yeah, I think, I, I, well, that, yeah, that's right. That's right. Just putting in the broader context of um, the, the evisceration of, of gains that women have made, this definitely right, is on top of all of those other things that you mentioned. Um, I, you know, just thinking about political participation, you know, because I, um, you know, I know that people are, are frustrated, right? They're frustrated with the Democrats. They're frustrated. You know, there's the Women Health Protection Act, which would codify the protections of Roe. They're unable to pass it, right? They, they can't get past the filibuster. They won't get rid of it. And, you know, I think there are many people who are like, who are saying people should vote, right? And the answer is vote. And then other people are, are frustrated and they're sort of saying that, you know, voting, it doesn't matter because the D Democrats aren't able to get anything done. And I guess like one thing for me in this moment is just thinking that, you know, it used to be there's constitutional right, constitutionally protected right to abortion. And that meant that government officials really, there was a limit to what they could do, right? right? And now um, I think your views on abortion and your ability to impact abortion rights um, sort of at every level of government, right? Um, and, you know, the ways that we, people, elected officials, it's not just about passing the big legislation, but it, and it is about that as well, but also just the ways that people are exercising discretion, right? So like um, Greg Abbott in Texas, you know, when, you know, in the, during the pandemic, you know, when there were all these restrictions on COVID, you know, COVID related restrictions, he said people couldn't have access to abortion because it wasn't, um, you know, medically necessary or whatever, you know, there was restrictions and sort of like things that were immediately necessary. So he basically had discretion. He was trying to use it in a way to um, take away abortion rights. But there are other ways in which, you know, uh, you know, governors who are pro-choice governors are really trying to um, expand capacity of abortion providers, right? Making funding available for people who travel. Um, you know, there are prosecutors who are saying that they're not going to, in in the banning states, say that they're not going to actually enforce these laws, right? Um, attorney generals who are saying, well, you know, these pre-row bans um, that that are super old, you know, we're taking the the view that they're not enforceable. You know, just like there are just so many different levels in which government officials exercise discretion. And I feel like we need to vote, um, you know, for harm reduction, if nothing else, right. In terms of like, who's sort of exercising this discretion. Um, and the other thing, like hopeful thing I'll say <laughs> is that I do think a lot of the things that reproductive justice activists were trying to get done before Dobbs, we are sort of seeing, I mean, and we were seeing this a little bit before Dobbs because they were, you know, they were effective or organizing, but, you know, just this idea of, you know, allocating more money to train abortion providers, right? Like, you know, New York did that, um, you know, making New York, I, I don't know if New York has done this, but I think Oregon, New York City, again, ha are making money available for people who come from out of state to pay for their abortions, right? These are kinds of things that, 
people would have thought was crazy before in the pre-row days where, where, you know, no one wanted to stick their neck out to protect abortion rights, right? States are actually passing laws that, um, where uh, the provision of abortion was limited to doctors. They're recognizing, in fact, that's overly restrictive, like, you know, midwives or um, nurse practitioners can provide abortions, right? So like these sort of good public health things they should have been doing anyway, mm-hmm. um, because I think people are now recognize that um, there's a threat to abortion rights. And, and you know, in some, in some places, maybe their abortion's been destigmatized. Um, you know, there's an opening for some, some things that I think there wasn't a political possibility for before. Yeah, I, I think that in some ways it can, you know, the, these bans can diminish, right, capacity to participate in the public sphere and to be politically represented. But on the other hand, what you're saying is there's the opposite possibility of it sparking mobilization of even certainly um, uh, institutionalized politics, but also grassroots movements and mobilization might also be an outcome of of this repressive. uh, Yeah, yeah. And repressive policies. Right. And also, you know, I just want to give a shout out into, you know, to like, you know, the abortion funds and groups that are doing practical support. Right. So because as lawyers, we sort of focus on the law and what or I do. But, you know, like the people, there's so many people out there like trying to really make it happen and support people, um, you know, in real concrete ways. Right. And service providers, but also, you know, legal aid. Yeah. Um. I want to think about the United States in comparative perspective. What's happening globally with reproductive rights? What have been the trends? Uh, And how is the U.S., through restrictions on foreign aid, for example, uh, sought to limit women's reproductive rights abroad? And how does the U.S. overturning of Roe align with or counter worldwide trends? Yeah. Well. You know, I think, uh, you know, over the last 50 years, there's really been a global trend towards liberalization of abortion laws. It's definitely true that the United States was ahead of the rest of the world um, in terms of um, protecting abortion rights. But, you know, over the last, you know, most countries have really been trying to, to you know, um, moving towards making abortion more accessible. uh, I think since 2000, over 30 countries have liberalized their abortion laws. And there's really just been a handful of countries that have gone the other way, I think, um, and made their laws more restrictive. I think like Poland, Honduras, Nicaragua, and now the United States, right? So we're definitely going against the global trend. Um, I think there, you know, there's a discussion about, so how is this decision going to affect other countries, you know, and I do think, you know, Roe Ro was a trailblazer. There's no question about that. Right? It was 1973, um, you know, and many high courts um, have cited Roe. I think human rights bodies also have talked about Roe. Um, but I think we're in a different, I think we're, and certainly I think there are countries, you know, where anti-abortion people are going to jump on this and sort of you know, say the United States has overturned Roe versus Wade and try to rely on that reasoning. But, but I think where we are right now is, you know, we're in a different place in terms of um, how the articulation of uh, the, the need to have access uh, to abortion as sort of a human right 
right, from human rights bodies, as well as from high courts from many other countries, right? And I feel like Supreme Court, for various institutional reasons, I think has sort of doesn't occupy the place that it used to in terms of um, influencing other high courts. I think it's part in part because um, you know, the Supreme Court was the oldest uh, high court, right? And so there's a little bit of other countries just having like a, a history of its own jurisprudence to rely on. And also I think really um, the esteem in which the justices are held, you know, there's a little bit about sort of the uh, transnational dialogue between courts, right? And, and the Supreme Court really, you know, now that Justice Kennedy is gone, really not engaging as much with uh, high courts in other countries and sort of citing them and the United States maybe Supreme Court being more of an outlier. So I think like, I'm less concerned that uh, it's going to have a negative impact on jurisprudence of other countries, you know, or as much as it might have, you know, maybe, you know, 15 years ago. Um, there is definitely though, this idea, you know, this, of the United States trying to use its um, political and, um, and uh, you know, funding resources to try to tie the hands of other countries, right? So like, you know, historically um, the Helms Amendment prohibits government governments from using US um, foreign aid assistance to fund abortion as a method of family planning. And, and no one's kind of like tried to figure out exactly what that means. I, I, you know, and, and partly, you know, that's, it's problematic because I think that, I think that should mean that they're allowed to perform abortions in certain instances, right? Like if they have, you know, you have like people have access to contraception and then people get pregnant and it was unintended. I feel like that's not using abortion as a method of family planning, certainly in cases where you need access to abortion, you know, in life and health situations. But I, what I'm hearing is that, um, in many countries or many places, people aren't sure exactly what they can do and what what they can't do. So they're not even um, providing abortions because the threat of losing the funding is so great. And on top of that, like you have, you know, the Mexico City policy, the global gag rule that really um, uh, prohibited organizations from performing abortions if they accept it. So the, I think Helms Amendment was like, you can't use US money uh, for abortions. Uh, as a, a form of family planning, and the help and the Mexico City policy is, if you accept any U.S. funds, even if it's not used for abortions, right? And that I think was really um, traumatic during the Trump years. Um, and I think you know, for other countries or, or for people uh, providing public health and other services in other countries, the flip flop is just probably impossible to manage, right? In terms of like you're sort of building up a program reliant on big grants from the United States. And then, you know, you're going to have to cut all of that programming. I think just, it's hard for you to actually uh, continue to provide abortion services, right. Given other things that you might want. So um, I think because of the funding, like the U S continues to have an outsized influence in other countries. Yeah, absolutely. It has a lot of leverage over, you know, what kinds of services are provided. Yeah. I want to ask you, about how we might advance reproductive justice, both in the United States and at the international level. What do you, what needs to happen, do you think? What are some of the, like in, you know, again, we could think in very short-term concrete ways or even, you know, the ideal of what we would like to see. Right. Um, 
Well, you know, we talked earlier about, um, you know, human rights bodies sort of articulating uh, norms and sort of articulating like what human rights are implicated when access to abortion is denied. I feel like that that's crucially important to continue to happen. I think it's, um, you know, because many constitutions right uh, around the world are really based on the ICPR Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So, um, so just that norm setting, I think, is really important. And and again, sort of the articulation, the explanation, right? And um, is important. I think that's important for popular education. I think you know, so many high courts, you know, rely on. Um, decisions from human rights bodies, either because they're directly binding or because it's persuasive authority. So like, I think that's critically important at the international level. Um, but I think, you know, the other thing is we really need to be um, building support on the ground, right? And, and um, you know, when abortion access has been liberalized in in different countries, sometimes it's done legislatively, sometimes it's done by high courts and, um, but like if you look at Ireland, you know, there was sort of like this back and forth, you know, the human rights bodies sort of issued decisions saying Ireland had to change their law. They had, you know, that horrible instance of the death of, of the, the woman in Ireland. Um, and then there was mobilization. Right. And, and, and that was really important. Um, but even in cases where the high court is sort of issuing the decision, liberalizing abortion rights, you still really need that mass mobilization and support to ensure that the decision is implemented. So it's sort of both like, it's important for us to be articulating uh, norms because I think it does have an impact in the way that people understand issues, right? In the popular education, but we need to be building um, the support on the ground and organizing, you know, and I think like one thing in the United States is, you know, for me, I, you know, I'm in my fifties, right? I, I grew up with Roe versus Wade and, you know, a lot of people just really don't understand what it means to live in a world without Roe, you know, yeah. and, you know, we really didn't have the level of concern. I feel like, you know, people, you know, in Poland and other places, right, where people were taking the streets because they saw what the everyday impact was. So, you know, maybe this will help organizing efforts in the United States because that, I mean, I, I think it, it's crucial, like no right, I think is is safe unless people are really mobilized to um, support it. Yeah, I think what this brings to the forefront is just how tenuous rights are. And as you say, without someone seeking to actively defend them uh, and protect them, they can easily be stripped away. And it just seems that reproductive rights uh, are just the beginning uh, of some agendas to really dismantle rights gains that we've made for trans persons, for same-sex couples, for a variety of other vulnerable persons. We've already seen the voting attack on voting rights, uh, particularly targeted at Black and Brown persons in this country. So rights are indeed, are indeed tenuous. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Professor Suhu. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise uh, on this issue area and for, uh, you know, bringing to light both the historical background to uh, reproductive oppression in the United States, but also helping us to understand uh, the U.S. In, in a global perspective as well. Thanks. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you to our listeners. Wishing everybody safety and good health.